we are living in someone's false ARG. This is what the Great Reset is. They're just creating what they want the next story to be. And we also are seeing the revealing right now to understand how this 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 realm works so that we can walk through it with, with greater awareness and consciousness. So then going back to the whole thing of like, you know, why does mysticism work? Why, does, why is synchronicity important? Why is looking at rivers, looking at where you are important? Because that is a baseline reality, which is deeper than the ARG. You are going to connect to something. That is the human experience. Hello? Hey, Mike, how are you? Mystic Mark, how are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm more like, I feel like missed it, Mark, today. <laughs> so, missed, it. missed it, Mark, because I missed your, your call. But I was over here thinking that you were going to call, and then I realized, oh, he already did. <laughs> so here we are. How are you, my friend? It's been a while. It has. Yeah, I'm doing well. I, I woke up to half a foot of snow outside so i'm looking forward to that first snowfall of 2022 and we really didn't have much snow in 2021 at least this half of the year so yeah i'm excited about about that as far as today's concerned but i'm excited as what we're gonna get into because there's so much that has happened since we did this the last your handbook for the apocalypse came out december 18th so and I'm sure I think we recorded it the day before. So yeah, there, lots gone down. How about you, Mike? Lot, lots going down. Yes, yes, yes. And lots gone down. It almost feels like three episodes worth of material have al has already been has already dissipated <laughs> into the memory hole because it keeps adding to it. Yes. But let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin with this day. Like the 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 what what is what is the calendar day today? Right. It's, I should know I that off the top of my head. Yeah, it's the 7th, 1-7-2022. Okay. So we got about four inches of snow. And already two interesting things have been trans have transpired because it's what? It's, it's 10.30 a.m. for both of us for East Coast time. And the first one was I was, Jenny and I were planning on smoking a brisket today. All right. All right. Have you ever smoked a brisket before? Uh, I smoke briskets every day. No, no, I've never, <laughs> never smoked so a brisket. It's a, it's an, for the most part, it's an all day outdoor experience. And it's kind of fun to do during winter. And it's kind of fun to do during the snow. But already, as that began, there were all of these, I wasn't anticipating the snow. And it is good to do in the snow. Like I, I think I knew that we're supposed to get some, but but the the smoker which I used to cook the brisket, it was frozen shut, and that's never happened. So like the whole morning was like, okay, let me go and take care of all of the 
the things to get the smoking process, um, the smoking process kicked off. And with these unexpected uh, circumstances, the frozen smoker, all of that, but we got it done, we got it done. So, so that was the beginning. And then I, that's why I need an extra 10 minutes. I told you for the recording because I, we're still working on getting the temperature right and all that sort of stuff. And then I started getting in the right headspace for our conversation. And one of the things which I wanted to, to talk about, or, or we're going to talk about a little bit today, is going to have to do with magic rings, like rings that go on your fingers. Oh, and, man. And, and specifically talking about two rings, which I, which I may have even discussed them before, but, but some interesting things have occurred in the last couple of weeks. So I wanted to bring, tell those stories and bring them to light. So to get to the proper headspace, I go upstairs into kind of like the, 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 the sacred space, the meditation spot and so forth. And I, I get in the right space and that's where these rings are. And I take up those rings. And after like just there for like eight or nine minutes, I put them in my pocket. I got on like sweatpants, you know, but sweatpants with pockets. They're loose pockets, not like jeans pockets, but they're, but they're, they're, they're looser than jeans pockets, but it's not like they're, they have holes in them. So after getting in the right headspace, getting in the right headspace, I come down into the basement. And the basement is where I like to record these shows with you. I go in the basement, I go in and out, and I get settled in, and I put my hand in the pocket to go grab the rings. And of the two rings, one is significantly more significant to me in terms of what it represents and so forth, and that one is gone. Like I literally had it in my pocket, a minute or two minutes before when I was upstairs and somehow along the trip of coming downstairs, it, dis it disappears. It disappears. It's just like, it's almost exactly, it's almost exactly like um, the stories I kind of shared as it relates to this, the crystal, like which is popping in and out of, mm, popping right. in and out of, of, of reality. And, these are the same spots, like the sacred spot upstairs and the basement downstairs where they both happen. But the truth of the matter is I kind of felt the ring, like I thought I, see, I felt it like when I sat down in the chair, which I sit in, I thought that I felt like it come out, like I, I felt it come out of my pocket. Um, but it wasn't clear, so that's when I realized it was missing. I reached in, I found one of the rings was outside of the pocket, but I couldn't find the other one. I couldn't find the other one at all. And so there was this moment in time from when I got that text from you that says cool to um, when we actually con connected or maybe it wasn't, it was when I was ready. It was when I was ready to sit down with you and when we actually spoke and that was when I realized the ring was missing and I was kind of like walking up and down because I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, I would like to have this issue resolved before you and I uh, start our conversations because I don't want to have my, my consciousness half focused on finding the ring. Right. So long and short of it, long and short of it, long and short of it, the moment, the moment the phone rang and it was you, I looked down on the floor, a place that should, the ring should not be at all. And if it was there and if it fell out, I would have heard it like, because it's a, it's a, it's a cement floor. It's not finished floor. This is like an unfinished basement. It would have made a clank and I would have heard that clank. I see the ring in the middle of the friggin' floor. So I don't know what any of that means, but that is the that is the energy which I'm bringing to this conversation right now. Oh, the happy 2022. Happy 2022. I love it. I I got some pictures to show you maybe afterwards because they're not 
I'm not going to add anything to the conversation uh, other than what I'm about to say. I have been really getting into wire wrapping, uh, back into it, you know, because I've, I think I've shown you my work before I carry them, like some of my better pieces in my car. So I probably showed you when we, when we hung out once or twice, three times, whenever that was. But I got back in the swing of it and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to show you the one I plan on sending you, but that was the goal. I was like, you know what? It's Mike's birthday. It's a milestone for him. It's a big year. I'm going to make Mike a wrap. And I don't, I'm not afraid to tell you because, you know, it's still going to be a surprise what it looks like. But I will say that in the effort of making you a wrap, I, I went and I made a, a wrap with over 80 crystals in it. And I was like, you know what? This is just too big. I don't think, I don't think this is the right one. So I kind of got uh, ahead of myself there and, and made a, a really big pendant over the past few weeks. But either way, I did, before we get too far into your stories, I did follow up with what you asked me to do with that sigil that I found. And what did you find out or what happened? So you asked me to meditate with it and you asked me to maybe try to have like a dream or, or like put it in my mind before I go to bed. So maybe I'll have a dream that will give me some insight. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to do that last night. So that way it's all fresh in my mind when I wake up and talk to Mike. Cause I had, I had tried dreaming about it in the past few weeks, but nothing, nothing really significant came up. After this morning, I noticed the theme to my dreams when I had that intention. So I drew the, the, the sigil from memory and it was interesting to draw it from memory first and then compare it to the image and then try to draw it while looking at the image. And then I tried to draw it a third time after knowing what it looks like and having the reference. And either way, all three are very unique. I don't know what that says about my art style or just maybe about the nature of memory, but it was cool to see how like my mind had pictured the features differently than how they actually were. In reality, it almost looks like a, the letter Y and I remembered it as very anthropomorphized like person. Anyways, I didn't have any visual of that symbol in my dream, but what I did have is this consistent dream where whatever the reality is isn't quite clear but the landscape i have dreamt i was in this landscape for the past few months and i'm starting to like wonder where this place is why i'm why i'm like sort of dreaming this particular landscape it's a upstate Upstate New York town. That's the best way I can describe it just by how it looks. And I always go, end up going back to this state park parking lot, like the entrance to a state park. And I've had this motif in my dreams in a, for the past month here and there. And when I set the intention to, you know, maybe see that symbol in my dream or or find the meaning of that in my dream, I was brought back to that same place. And I, I don't know if we've talked about dreams that much on the show, but 
usually my dreams turn out to be kind of like dramatic, but I never remember the players involved. I just remember like the scene and the setting. I never remember the characters, you know, if, if, if each dream was like a movie plot. So that, that always bothers me when I wake up, I'm like, who was I just doing that with who, you know, cause it's, I'm never alone, but, but yeah, it was like this odd adventure through this same town that I've dreamt about for a couple months now. And, you know, given what I've told you about looking for a new place, I'm starting to wonder if maybe this is like a predecessor energy, right? Like, like. I haven't visited this physical location yet, but my mind knows that like, you know, this, there is a place out there where I'll be moving to. And it's kind of like the residual of that is seeping into my dreams. Can you describe what this reoccurring setting uh, looks like? It's very, it's very focused around the road like the road perspective and i drive a lot so that makes sense to me but um very road centric like everything i'm seeing in the dream is like as if i'm standing in the road or driving in the road and the state park looks very like like we're on a mountain there's pine trees it's high elevation it's 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 a place that's very like california warm summery but like mountainous, like it could change to freezing cold weather quick. But yeah, that's really, I mean, it's, it's a very fleeting thing. And I've only just started to take note. Is it more, is it a feeling like, like sometimes a dream, like you're like, I don't really know what it looks like, but I know what it feels like almost like, like the dream feel. Is it kind of, is that how you describe it? If I was a, a more talented, like illustrator, I, I certainly would be able to draw it because the image is more strong in my mind than the feeling. It's really, okay. it's like a vague amalgamation of places I've been. Like that's the best way I, I used to explain it. But now right. I'm starting to question whether it's from past or if it's from my future. So um, you said both California and New York. Uh, <laughs> yes. Like, can you differentiate like what you mean by that? Like what part is California yet? Like or New York? Well, or like why? Or maybe let me think this way. Why do you think it's New York? It felt like upstate New York because I'm familiar with upstate New York and I've driven around there and I kind of, I guess that was the impression that this dreamscape gave me. But okay. I I also say California just because of the like the height of the trees and like the the classic like. Um, Smokey the Bear kind of images of, you know, in the redwoods, like that also is in my mind there for some reason. But, and also like the high elevation, like in this dream, I'm driving through a town that seems like the road is very cartoonish. Like I could see it in front of me going like, ooh, up like really high. And, you know, that's, that's a big part of the dream is driving on this weird road. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's, (laughs) that's what happened this, this past night. When you say you driving, like, do you, do you see the vehicle which you're driving or is it more like just a sensation or a knowing in the dream world that you're driving? That's a, that's a great question. It's really, it's like my body is the car because okay. I, there's no like visual of like a steering wheel or anything like that. It's like my consciousness is, is the vehicle because okay. I'm like, there we go. There we go. There we go. So your, your, your viewfinder, your viewfinder is similar to that of like being dri- of driver. Right. 
Okay. Okay. Can I share some of my thoughts? Or is there any more before I share my thoughts? Well, no, that's it. I, I feel like, uh, you know, the experiment was to focus on that image that I found on that rock before my dream. And, and it was interesting how that dream just happened to be kind of thematic. Like it's some type of dream I've been having lately. So I don't know if that connects to the, to the sigil. I, I'm certain it does in a way because, you know, I've been having these dreams around the same time I've been kind of going on these synchro mystic journeys with Tara. So yeah, I definitely want to hear your thoughts, Mike. All right. So, so the first thing, you know, from this, this is just from my perspective, so just take it for whatever that's worth. The idea that the sigil and the dream are not connected is like, that's a, that's a, that's a complete false, false, premise the idea that 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 question could even come in the mind is that's a false premise like i know they're connected how they know connected because this is how it's unfolding right and the future and the past like i think that's kind of an interesting way to look at it but we're talking about the dream world where time doesn't exist like whatever the hell the dream world is i don't know what the dream world is but i know that we all dream right uh, time is not a function of dreaming so past and present i think are also are also a, a, a false premise also in terms of looking at it. And, but all of that being said, it sounds immensely significant. It sounds immensely significant to something which is happening in your life. Like whatever that may be, whatever this, this location is and how you're experiencing it. And my sense is if you want to continue to play with it either actively. So like what you did last night would be active. You are actively saying, I'm trying to invoke something using the sigil or passively meaning like if you ever have another dream where you're in the same sort of setting, you just and like by whatever reason, like you're not by plan, but like you woke up and like, holy shit, I was there again. Like you take note that, 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 that happened. And the more you bring awareness, consciousness, and openness to it, the more, the more structure that's, it's almost like a smoke. Like it's, it's smoke has form, but you can't grab it. And the more you try to grab smoke, the more you push it away, but there's something there and it's in a smoke, it's in a smoke stage right now. You can't quite grab it, but something seems to be materializing. The second thing, which I think is really interesting is, you know, your your, your desire to, to provide context from places you've been, whether that be New York and California. And this is where it gets kind of tricky because like, it could very well be a specific place in New York or California. Like that's definitely a possibility, or it could be something that has nothing to do with California or, or New York. That's a possibility as well. And so really being able to provide greater resolution into what you're saying. So when you were talking about New York, and particularly when you answered my question as to what made you think it was New York, it almost sounded like to me that it was a deductive process, that this must be New York because I'm familiar with New York and there's some similarities. And then the second thing, which was so of uh, the California part, was maybe not like we labeled it California, but what really seems to be accurate is tall trees, which may or may not be redwoods. Yes. And so, so what's cool about that is by not, by not linking it to New York or like tenting by not, by not tenting that there's New York or California, definitely just like similarities that allows it to become a little bit more fluid and open. Right. 
because I think I think that you're it's all connected. I mean that that's the very nature of all of our connected of our conversations is about the web the web of life and the interconnectivity. Mm-hmm. So we have to assume that all of our conversations and particularly anything that that is recurring, you know, this is part of the web and we are we are identifying exactly what these strings are that make up the web with with clarity to see what we're actually looking at. Agreed. I I like the way you put it and I like the reminder that there is no such thing as future or past or even present in a dreamscape. Right. right, right. Like I mean, we could talk about that in reality. Like there is no, there is no time. There's no past and future. Like yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. But yesterday <laughs> happened. Fucking yesterday. Do you understand that? And tomorrow. <laughs> so it's like you know, there's that interesting place if you're being honest with yourself of like the abstract idea of there being no time, and then the literal like no, there's fucking time. Like you know, a minute ago was a minute ago. You know, it's unfolding. But what's so cool about the dreamscape is like there's no arguing. You're like, oh yeah, there really time doesn't exist in a dream. Like, right. and so so we can say that without any sort of like internal conflict or argument about like you know what time is because when we talk about it, we're using both abstract and linear thinking. But and that's what creates inner conflict. But when we t- say specifically about the dream world and what we know of it, we're like, yeah, I can say with absolute certainty that time does not exist in dreams. Right. Right. And I I will point out, you made me think of this incredible, in my mind, incredible synchronicity. I was listening to uh, Mike Winner on the Higher Side Chats. Mike Winner helps out with Dr. Bear Lando's work. They have this, you know. Well, I've been on this show. So you're familiar. So so I, I wasn't that familiar and I spoke with them. Well, I'm sorry. I was listening to Mike on the higher side chats and I'm listening to him describe this place in California. And I, that's one of my favorite things about podcasts is when somebody starts describing where they live and then I can, you know, use my imagination and visualize. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of relevant to what we were just talking about. And to bring up the incredible synchro part is. Our other mutual friend, Chance Garten, had me on his Vibrant show, and he's like, you know what? We're going to open it up to callers. Let's take some callers. And the first person that calls in is Mike Winner from the AlphaCast. So it ended up like I, I was expecting maybe a listener with a question, and we got a listener with a podcast and it basically turned into a swap cast. So it was, it was a pretty interesting for me. I didn't go and tell him like, oh, hey, I was just listening to you <laughs> a few days ago. But, you know, there, there really is no boundaries, you know, especially when it comes to the interconnected nature of what, what someone like Chance does with the, the live show. You know, it, there's just so much uh, possibility. And that was one of them. But anyways, I feel I feel like we got some... A little far away from the story you said you had, right? You, you started <laughs> that, my friend. I got to that. It flows. It flows. We'll come back to the stories. We got plenty of time for that. So, so that Mike Winner had no idea that you had just listened to him on the Higher Side Chat, correct? Right. And then he just happens to call in on the show that you are with Chance. Right. And what was the time frame between like you listening to him and then that show with Chance? Was you being a guest? Well, was that the same day? Was that the same week? Was that the same month? 
it was the same week and why it was a little more like significant was because I have not traveled as much lately just because of the weather. So the last time I went on a little drive, Tara and I were listening to uh, that episode of the Higher Side Chats and we went to a place called Cathedral Pines, the tallest pine trees in the state of Connecticut. Well, the tallest oh. trees in the state of Connecticut, as a matter of fact. Right, right. And uh, Winter lived somewhere in Northern California, correct? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that's fascinating. It's particularly fascinating. So I think I was on his show in early December, maybe. Okay. I I don't consume a lot of of of, of podcasts for better or for worse, and so I was I had never heard of him and. And, you know, I, I received uh, a decent number of requests to come on, on shows. And some, you know, it really depends upon the mood I'm in when, when I receive it. Some I'm like, oh, definitely. And some I'm like, sometimes I'm like, no, I, I want to take a break. So I was in this, this period where I was like, all right, I'm, I don't want to go on any shows. I need to take a break. And that's what my initial response was going to be until I saw the dude's name was Mike Winner. <laughs> and you know it's so close to Mike Wall, right? And there and, wasn't there another podcaster that that same sync happened. Well, we talked. I was talking. There was an. I talked about another Mike Win W I N, right, right, right. and how that and that, how that came in. But that was the whole reason. What the only reason I was like, oh, I'll, I'll go in your podcast. I'd never heard of it before. Like was because of the synchronicity of just the phonetics. Or it's not even phonetics. More the spelling of of our of our names and so there is something very very interesting at play i think with all of those with all of those touch points agreed and uh pro tip for you podcasters out there you want to get mike on your show consider changing your name <laughs> well played uh all right so it's going to drop one more thing about the ring and then we'll go back we'll go back and forth with stories and stuff like that okay? let's hear it yeah all right, so this ring which I'm talking about, I was given this ring when I was 13 years old from my mother's brother, all right? Okay. And this ring, he was, so he's my uncle. My uncle was like a, just like an all around kind of like, like businessman. Like he had a whole bunch of properties in Baltimore. He was a jeweler. He was, you know, all these different sort of things. So he was an interesting character. I didn't know him particularly well. I, didn't, I know very few members of my family very well, but, but he is probably the only uncle I know that has ever given me a ring. So he gave me this ring and it's, you know what a signet ring is? It's like, I don't, I, I mean, I've heard of it before. I, I actually, <laughs> it was in this book, The Empire of the Wheel, one of the main sort of victims of this crime that Walter Bosley's investigating was a Freemason, and one of the clues was his signet ring. So yeah, I, I am slightly familiar. I know that Freemasons give them to each other, at least from the context of this book. So a signet ring is like, and I'm thinking more so about like the shape. So it's got like a shape and it's got a... Okay. So I won't associate it too. next to Freemasonry for well, your no, sake. That, that, that's totally fair. <laughs> totally fair. So, it's, so I don't know if this is where it comes from, but have you ever seen like the idea of where someone would have a, a if you will, a sigil, a marker on their ring? And then they pour wet wax or like liquid right. wax, and then they, a seal. they use that sig for the seal. 
And what are they sealing it with? They're sealing it with their signature, their signet, their sigil. Uh, all right. And so, like, if you can imagine, that's that's you know, kind of the the birthplace of it. At least that's, that's how I'm framing it up. And so it it's got to have like a shape which is going to go into this into this liquid wax. It's right. got to be flat. It's got a design on it. Like all embossed. these practicalities. Embossed. Thank you. And so that's kind of like the nature of a signet ring. And then you could have signet rings of all different types. Like I mean, most people don't use them for that purpose anymore. But it would be often they're worn on the pinky and they're flat and they often will have either a person's initials or an association with a group like Freemasons or what have you. Right. So I've got this signet ring, which was given to me when I was 13. It's gold and it has my initials on it. MW, like Mike Winner. <laughs> All right. And like we get into the whole MW thing, like, cause I've thought about that. I put a lot of mind time into that over the, over the years, but nonetheless, got, hold on. Did you drop your phone? <laughs> Don't tell me you lost your phone. Uh, we're here. All right. All right. Good. Yeah. I'm walking around and, and my head's phone cord got pulled out as I walked by the door handle. So, okay. So, so this was given to me when I was 13. Like, you know what sort of 13 year old boy wears it, wears like a, like a, a peaky ring of his initials, right? <laughs> you know, it, and at no point, at no point has, has wearing a ring ever appealed to me. Like, I'm just not a jewelry kind of guy. Like I usually do wear a chain with something around it. Even when I was married, I would never wear the wedding ring. In fact, I think I lost it like two years into my wedding. Um, like I'm just not a ring kind of guy or, or even a jewelry kind of guy, but I've had this ring, this signet ring. I'm 50 years old. So I've had it for what? 37 years. And I'm looking at it and there's this thing, which there's this, it's, it's kind of like, it's almost like a, a humorous effect. Like I look at it and I laugh. I'm like, I want to start wearing a signet ring. There would be nothing more fun for me to start wearing my signet ring, like as a pinky ring, because it's so not who I identify with myself as being like, you know, a non-jewelry wearer. And I'm looking at it, and so I've been kind of playing with it. I'm like, I need to get this ring resized. It doesn't fit on my, my finger. Like, I could wear it on, like, the tip of my pinky, and I have it there. I'm not a second ring. I'm not even going to get to the second ring, but know that there's a second ring. And these are the two rings which I was talking about earlier. And the ring which I lost was the, the signet ring. The one that disappeared was the signet ring. So, anyway, I've been thinking over the past ah, two weeks, three weeks that I'm definitely going to get this ring resized and I may or may not start wearing it on a regular basis. Like that's just kind of how I, I operate. Like I'm like a turtle, like maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'm not, but I'm at least going to go one step further and get it resized. So I have the opportunity. So I've been holding this ring a lot. All sorts of new sort of things have, been, have come into my world in terms of when I do my inner sacred space, I've been kind of playing with, and the ring has been a big part of it. And so, to, so it, that's just where I've been for like two weeks. Yesterday, something happened, which kind of blew my mind with the ring. And that's the point of all of this story, that setup, which I just told you. So the, and I'll send you a picture of this picture. It's a, it's a very unusual display of MW. What's cool of MW as a, as a two initials is they play off of each other very interestingly. It's like they're upside down 
kind of like maybe a D and a P are interesting, lowercase d and lowercase p in terms of like interesting mirroring of one another. Six and a nine, exactly. Like it's got that type of play. Right. And so what it looks like, how like it was actually created, if I were to guess, is that the signet ring came blank. Like it's this certain shape with this oval flat plane, which is where the it could be carved to be whatever you want to be on it. And so the person who made this ring for me carved in this MW, but it's done by like a jeweler, like a like someone who like went and studied that this is what they do for a living. And it is carved into, if I were to guess, I got to know what tools they would use, particularly 37 years ago, probably same ones they'd use now, but they cut into or engraved into the gold plane, this M and the W, and there are very, very tiny uh, diagonal lines that kind of fill in the, the shapes of the letters. So the letters aren't just a line, there's depth to it. So the point of all of this, I've had this ring for 37 years. I've looked at it a bunch of times, and particularly I've been looking at it a lot the last two weeks. I was on a call yesterday, and I often like to bring a something of, of sacred significance to me whenever I go on a call. And it's always based upon something that is just fresh. You know, it's never the same thing, something which is going on in my life. So I picked up this ring and I brought it on. I brought it with me and I was talking to the person and I'm also kind of like looking at the ring and just kind of playing with it. That having something in my hand really helps me focus mentally. And so I'm doing that and it might be around like four o'clock in the afternoon so it's getting dark out, but it's not dark yet. The room is, is softly lit, which I'm in, but it's still pretty lit. And the ring itself is in a little bit of a shadow from the, from the overhang of the desk. And I'm just looking at it, and I somehow hit the light in such a way. Somehow the lighting was so perfect, and the angle was so perfect that the M and the W, the, the, the background of the ring was in the shadow, but the M and the W, which is carved by whatever that jeweler's hand, captured and reflected the light as if they were glowing. It looked like, not in terms of like, you know, I see this with my third eye, I see this in my imagination. No, I'm talking about like the rods and the cones in my physical fucking eyes. The <laughs> ring began to glow exactly like the fucking Lord of the Rings ring. You know where that starts to glow? Like, yes. it looks like that. Like, and I'm like, like, I'm like, this is really happening. And there's this logical part of my brain, which is like, oh, well, it's because the light is hitting it this way and that way. And then this other part of me is like, no, man, this is a real glowing ring that you've been holding on to. <laughs> so when it disappeared, when it disappeared before our call, I was like, I mean, that, that really got me into like, I'm getting this ring re-topped. And so, so that is, that is the, uh, that is my ring story for, to, to begin the call with. I love it. Wow. Yeah. And as you're, you're describing that, I'm imagining like Amber almost the way, like if you hit, if Amber gets, you know, Amber crystal gets in the right light, you know, kind of glows like the Lord of the ring there, but wow. Yeah. I, so I, I'll have to send you a picture of, of at least so you could see what the initials look like. Right. Right. Yeah. They kind of like a blank ring and then it gets carved. So whoever carved that, it wasn't like a, you know, factory or something. It was handmade. That's really cool. Well, I would imagine if you were to go to like, it's, it's funny. I, I've been looking at 
how do you resize a ring? I've never had that done before. And then I see there are all of these like custom jewelers who would probably be like what you're describing with the wire wrap that you, you know, the, the person who, who doesn't do that is an, you know, who, who takes that on as their, their actual livelihood. Like, yeah, that person is the one who did the, the carving. Like when I say that person, you know, I just mean like, you know, general sort of state. Mm. Well, I like the ring and how it plays into what we're, well, what I was planning on bringing up because I just typed in the history of signet rings and you're right. They go back to, well, you mentioned what they're used for, but I'll add that they go back to 1400 BC and they played an important administrative role within society, just like you were saying, when you press the signet ring into hot wax or soft clay, a distinctive impression would be left that then functioned as an official seal, which connects to what I was listening to Joseph Farrell talk about. I think I went back and listened to Greg's first interview with Joseph Farrell on the Higher Side Chats, and I was listening to the Babylon Banksters, and it was a little bit of a diversion away from what I had been reading, but I wanted to get familiar with Joseph Farrell a little bit more before I cracked open his book, uh, Grid of the Gods, which I bought. And in that same way that we were talking with Peter Shampoo's book and how it came from this sort of, you know, one book to another, right? We got the medicine wheel book and then, you know, that came from getting the spirit in the stone book. And that came from going to uh, Woodstock, New York, which came from talking to Aurora, right? So we recognize that chain of synchronicities that eventually even led to the Manitou stone book, right? So here we are now. I've been reading Empire of the Wheel. It's getting colder up here in New England, so I've been spending a lot more time just hanging around the house. And that's what I've been reading, Empire of the Wheel by Walter Bosley. And as I usually do when I start reading a book like this, that you know Walter uses a lot of sources. And it's actually uh, co-authored by Richard Spence, who I've had on the show recently. And, you know, they have a lot of sources that they're using and when i start seeing the same book being referenced over and over in a particular book i'm like you know what i need that book <laughs> so i go and i pick up a book called the handprint of atlas by shesh harry right and funny enough this connects back to a guy who i had brought up on this show mistakenly i remember you were talking about a astronomer and I asked you if his name was Athanius Kircher and you were like, no, I don't, that's not the right person. You were talking about someone else. And the reason I asked is because I've had this weird book almost like it's, it's actually, you'd know exactly how it is. Cause your book is very similar. It's not quite a paperback book. It's like more of a, you know, how would you describe your from the 40th or right to the 40th parallel? It's more, it's, it's not a pamphlet, but it's more like a, is there like, it's like a like publisher a, term for that? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like a, per, like a permanent magazine. Right. Right. So that's like, the, if you, uh, yeah. It's it's the same style as as that this book I've had for many years about Athanius Kircher, and you know, 
pulling the thread back together, we got Empire of the Wheel, which led me to Handprint of Atlas, which led me back to a book that I've owned for, you know, five years now and really didn't know what to make heads or tails about what this guy was talking about other than that he was, you know, so-and-so in such-and-such time period, and, and this is what he did because all of his work is pretty esoteric and it's a lot of graphs and charts and, and artwork. So it, it was kind of like something I've been thinking about. You know, you collect all these ideas and they're just waiting there for you to sort them out, you know, and it's almost like the, the empire of the wheel book was necessary because when I first started reading this book, you know, and I don't want to give any of the contents of it, but, you know, it starts off as like a murder mystery. You know, seven or so people all die in 1915 in San Bernardino, uh, California, which is strange. Four of them are suicides. Three of them are poisonings of underage children. And for 1915, a rural area like San Bernardino... That was, you know, extremely out of the ordinary, you know, back then murder was, was not as statistically probable. And so, or at least, you know, we, we think so the case is very interesting, but then he takes this like weird left turn, which wasn't so weird for me into ley lines and geomantic corridors and all that good stuff that we've been talking about here and there on the show. And hit Walter Bosley and Richard Spence, their argument that they're kind of placing in a speculative, figure it out yourself kind of fun way that I enjoy, they're kind of supposing, well, maybe the ley lines are these energy corridors that are significant within this, you know, series of crimes somehow, right? Like there was an occult group that was maybe placing these crimes in certain areas to maximize the effect and he goes and cites Aleister Crowley's presence in the area and then does a little bit of like detective work on Crowley and sees that he was in Long Island and had this pretty strange relationship with what you might think of as a energy ley line right he had these folks in Detroit who he was enemies with, Aleister Crowley we're talking about here, and one of his strategies for dealing with these enemies in Detroit was going to Long Island Sound to conduct these rituals. Now, why would you go to Long Island if you have your enemies in Detroit, especially in 1915 when, you know, there's... You could send them a letter, you know, and it'll get to them in a few weeks, but there's no internet, there's no phones, you know? So how are you, how are you dealing with these folks in Detroit all the way from Long Island? And Walter then brings in Tesla as maybe an explanation because Tesla was also very fascinated in Long Island because of the energy potential and the ability to send radio wave through subterranean currents. So, I mean, that to me sounds like a pretty advanced way of describing a, a ley line. I mean, you know, minus the cultural context of the whole ley thing, or, you know, we can call them dragon lines as well. But yeah, it's very, it's very fascinating that it goes to Long Island, right? And I, I, there's a little bit more, but I'm wondering what you're thinking so far. 
so I'm fascinated by the story. Like, and, and so the, the, the beginning of these, these are like real, like historical murders in San, or in, in, where yes, San Bernardino. Okay. In San Bernardino. And then the walk me through, I was, Crowley was doing, I, I just want to make sure I understand the, the event correctly. Crowley was doing rituals on the Long Island Sound to protect himself spiritually, energetically, magically, whatever word you want to use, from enemies who were in Detroit, Michigan, correct? Right. So he had some enemies in Detroit, Michigan, right. who I think were Freemasons that he had associated with because they wanted to learn about the OTO, and then they learned that he had some Masonic rituals. This is the story they give us, but either way, there is a dispute. They, the, the story in the book? Yes. Okay. Yes. And Crowley, again, he kind of comes into the fray because in that time period that I mentioned when all those deaths occurred in 1915, San Bernardino was a railway hub from the you know eastern part of the western united states to the northwest you know because of the rocky mountains right so in bernardino like it, what's it near like something larger like where like whether that be los angeles or it's, san francisco or it's the like the the east side of what's now los angeles like the greater okay. los angeles area but okay. back okay. then obviously okay. not as much city mega megalopolis sure, going on so so Crowley was Crowley in that area. In that area at mm -hmm. that time. And you said this was 1915? Right. Okay. Right. So, and, and so I, and I, and I, I just want to make certain the, the big picture. He was the connection though, from Long Island to Detroit, you were, you then linked to Tesla's interest in Long Island and its ability as, as a, a good location for Tesla to do his wireless type of, of, of work, correct? Right. And it, you're, and so, so in, in the 1900s, in 1901, so way before we kind of get to this story with Crowley, Tesla had built the massive radiating structure called the Wardenclyffe Station. And what and it, that, that's the one with the big, like Tesla coil or ball at the top. And it's like, there are pictures of it, right? And this the whole thing with the JP Morgan tearing it down. Right. So it, it, that is that the one which which that's where I know of Tesla, but I know it's the same thing. That's the same one, and okay. and they did tear down the 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 metal structure, but what was underneath was I think a fifteen to ten yard deep or or feet deep well that had four chambers perpendicular to the the tower structure going in all four directions, a hundred feet. So it was more than just a tower. It was really, it was like an underground type of structure and the tower right. was rotating the energy, which was then channeled underground. And Tesla's idea was, you know, to, to not use wires at all and be able to conduct radio waves through the ground and have these stations where the subterranean beam transmission of radiant energy could be continued. And I read that from my notes, but that comes from Tesla's words on what he was trying to do. And then people know this story. There was a whole uh, series of fortunate, unfortunate events that led to him 
kind of losing a lot of money and and that whole project never really was fully completed and then there's a lot of rumors that the u.s army took that area over and used it for their own u.s you know radio communications right so and also the the cover story was well we have to take it over so that german spies don't use it well there's sort of a little bit more tangential evidence of Crowley and and all that because Crowley was very much a spy for British intelligence and and embedding himself within, you know, different German groups and whatnot to do whatever it was that he was tasked to do. And obviously he wasn't the, the greatest spy, so he didn't always purely focus on that kind of stuff. So that that's what brings us to him being maybe uh, another, and, you know, him being in the San Bernardino area, that kind of connects him to the, maybe the deaths possibly, and the group of people who were behind it. But he's not like blamed or anything in the, in the book. It's more, they're bringing him up to show you like this type of practice of using these ley lines was possibly more prevalent than you might think. And Crowley, Tesla are examples of contemporaries who are using these type of practices in order to kind of show the reader like this is maybe why we're suspecting this uh, as an explanation for why these weird, strange deaths all happened in these strange, specific areas. So anyways. So, but- what, so you, you, I, you, I'm not going to read the book, so I'm going to have to ask you <laughs> questions. You have to give it away. I'm sorry. That's all right. Authors, but but I, it's fascinating. So well, they, it's a 10-year-old what, book, so. What's the conclusion? Like, where do they go with it? Like, what does the murders have to do with the, with, with utilizing of the, the earth currents? Well, I, I hate to say it, but I'm only on page 295 of a 500-page book. So I have gotcha. so I'm a little, gotten there yet. I have a little bit of uh, ways to go, but I did want to bring up this whole, I'm kind of in the middle and that's when they're talking about Crowley and they're bringing up Houdini also because Houdini was very much active in this whole sphere at this time. And, and yeah, again, Tesla's work comes up as sort of evidence for the probability of ley lines A being known about and then B being utilized and then C, you know, being utilized in this kind of adult cult, really dark way. So that's where I think they're going with it. And then, you know, later on, the series kind of goes into the Sonora Era Club. So my suspicion is that there's the what? this. The Sonora Era Club? Aero Club. Yeah. A-E-R-O, like aeroplane. So the Sonora Aero Club is. Dude, I've been, I've been getting so deep with the arrows, but A-R-R-O-W. Right. And there is a little bit of interplay with A-R-R-O-W and A-E-R-O, but it is A-E-R-O. Uh, that... Well, I find that A-E-R, like, uh, you're right. So they're, they're definitely connected. So go on. What were you going to say with this arrow, the arrow club? So they are, my suspicion is, is they're involved because based on the, and I ordered the second book, so I'm ready to continue reading this series once I finish the next couple hundred pages, but it's titled Empire of the Wheel 2, Friends from Sonora. And, you know, I've heard Walter talk a bunch on different podcasts, so I kind of, I'm familiar with that. I just haven't read about it enough to have all the details, but it's fascinating. I mean, that this group, 
who is a a breakaway civilization, as Walter talks about in his interviews. Uh, who is the breakaway civilization? <laughs> the Sonora Aero Club. So, all right, let so me give you a little breakdown on them. Yeah, right. So what's the Sonora Aero Club? Like, so talk to me as if I've never heard of this before because I have. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So, okay. So have you heard of the mysterious airship phenomena of the 1800s? No. Okay. So a little bit of like UFO community type stuff here. A lot of UFO researchers will talk about the mysterious airship sightings and say, hey, you know, UFOs are not all that old, but, you know, because they've been having weird unidentified flying objects being seen in the sky. They just haven't always looked like these flying saucer discs, right? So there is this whole series or group of sightings of mysterious Zeppelin-like airships, right? The classic, you know, blimp type image with the big, you know, rotors and the fin and maybe like an under uh, deck carriage thing where the person, the operator sits from. So there were all these sightings in the United States of these mysterious airships from 18, eight, from the 1880s to the 1890s, right? And Walter talks about this Sonoro Aero Club, this group of German immigrants who lived in America, who were mostly in like the Texas, Arizona, California area. And Charles Delshaw is one of the more notable figures that's associated with this group. And they were behind these sort of airships, right? And they were building them. But Walter's theory is that their technology that they were using to operate these airships wasn't merely, you know, propellers and gas and, and, and that sort of thing. He is talking about, you know, what we might be more familiar hearing from Maybe the Nazi bell type stuff where it's like mm -hmm. a vibrational energy that's levitating the ship. And what Walter said that really stuck out, and I've repeated it a couple times in the past few weeks, is imagine the same traje trajectory that we've seen with innovation in the car, right? From 1920 so on when the Model T was invented to 2020 with maybe Lamborghinis and Jaguars and all these amazing, you know, cars that can go, you know, 60 miles an hour in a split second. Imagine that same scale of innovation applied to the airships that were invented around the mid 1800s. With that same trajectory, you can imagine what looks like a big clunky airship might, you know, evolve into what we now know as the flying saucer image. And that's kind of what his theory is with this aero ship club, the Sonora Aero Club, that they were using these airships to basically operate outside of mainstream society, mainstream nation states, and, and even mainstream trade, and eventually got to the point where in like this kind of semi-developed area, the South America, Central America, you know, obviously in the 1800s and 1900s, a lot of shifts and change you know mexico's was not a country back then texas was its own country back then you know like there's a lot of things that we might not remember about that or at least i didn't about that time period but it is interesting to to see all this breakaway civilization stuff and then look at you know roswell and say like well what if it was humans the whole time and the alien theory was a cover story 
to keep people away from figuring out that there's this breakaway civilization of German immigrants, you know, and that whole German connection comes up obviously more sinisterly in, in World War II, and especially after World War II, when the ex-Nazis or maybe current Nazis left Germany and, and went to places like South America, where this breakaway civilization of Germans was probably already established, right? So, and I, and I think it's even more fascinating because I just talked to a, a completely different author, a really, he's around my age, actually, his name's Chaz, and he went down to South America and he was sussing around these, you know, Nazi, supposed Nazi compounds and whatnot. And he stumbled upon this whole friendship cult that has a lot of similar themes when we're looking at what's defined as a breakaway civilization. So what's a friendship cult? So the friendship cult, very strange group of people. They have somewhat of like an alien motif. People have seen them in association with flying saucers, but I don't think there's ever been a sighting of them like leaving a flying saucer in the same way you hear like a Billy Meyer story or something like that. But the friendship group, they're kind of described as tall, blonde, blue eyes, that sort of, you know, Northern European look. They speak multiple different languages and they're in Chile, which, you know, you, you are, they, are, are they said to be human beings or are they said to be something else? Well, that's, that's definitely up to uh question. I think they refer to themselves as like interdimensional beings, but that there also is some sort of like, there's a mystery around whether or not that was actually them saying that, but every interaction that people have had with this group has been very strange. Like, you know, and again, Chaz is the guy who wrote the book on this. So I encourage people to get the full scoop from him, but he like what would be called or referred to as the Nordic. That's, that's definitely the vibe that you get. And, uh, and I, I definitely like Nordics being like interdimensional beings, there's interdimensional beings known as the Nordics. Right. Right. That's, that's the, I think Not that's necessarily someone from Norway, but maybe they're one of the same, who knows? Well, <laughs> that's the impression that I think they are portraying now, whether or not that's genuous or in, you know, genuine, disingenuous or not, I think that's kind of where Chaz is going with it. Like, well, what if they're, you know, just kind of giving the cover of, oh yeah, we're from the space brotherhood. We're, we're your space brothers uh, so that people don't find out that they're ex-Nazis sussing around in, in South America. Right. So that's kind of where some people go with it. Is that they're that they're Nazis, but then you know there are strange things like they have a a large amount of platinum that they're seemingly willing to trade with people. There's this one story Chaz mentioned about a couple whose boat sort of crashed into their tow line as they were passing each other, and when you know they came by to help them out and say like, "Hey, we'd like to repair your ship," they were very strange. You know, they spoke multiple different languages. And when they realized, you know, like, no, we don't have time to go with you so you can fix our boat, but can you pay us? They were like, yeah, we can pay you. They had all this, you know, cash, like almost uh, 50,000 or something in cash on their boat. And then they gave them the rest of the money in, in platinum, which ended up being like multiple thousands of dollars, like over what they needed to fix their boat. 
So there's a lot of like strange things that would make you think, yeah, they're possibly interdimensional. But then, you know, some authors I know are making the case that it, it could be a breakaway civilization. So, okay, I, I want to circle back to where this all began. But before <laughs> we get there, I need to just tell you, I've had one experience in my life with the Nordics or the, the or like what, like in this general idea of what you're describing. Okay. Can I about it? I would love to hear that. Yeah. So, let's, so let's this talk. was, um, so I'm familiar with a lot of these stories, or right? I've been familiar with like, particularly with like the different, the different alien species and the different breakaway and, and, right. and like, I, I've been, I've been, that's been in my radar. That's been on my radar for some point. Like I know that these are ideas that people talk about like to that degree. So this is maybe, oh God, it's, they say 2022. So I'm going to say somewhere between eight to 15 years ago. All right. Like maybe a little bit after 2012, maybe a little bit before 2012. And it was a one week period. Like it was one week period apart or it was in the same week, maybe not saying another way. And two times I saw the strangest people in Lancaster. And what I'm, if, if you haven't noticed by now, like I'm good at, at pattern recognition. And the reason why you get good at pattern recognition is like the part of the brain that's always like categorizing things. Like I do that a lot. I do that a lot. And I like to do that with people. So I, I have a very keen eye for noticing people and particularly noticing things that fall outside of the pattern. So in this one week period in Lancaster, somewhere between like five or eight and 15 years ago, I saw, um, I saw very, very strange people. So one is there's a, there's a, there's a, a nightclub, for lack of a better word, like a, a known music venue in Lancaster called the Chameleon Club. I don't know if it's still around, but it's got like a history, I think that like 30 years and, and tends to be like secondary and tertiary acts, but over their 30 years of history, like some big names have come by and, and, and it's kind of like a staple here in Lancaster. And I've, I think I've been to one or two shows there since I've lived in Lancaster and I went to this one show there. I think it was the very, very first time I was there and it set up in the sort of way where you'd have a stage on the first floor and then there's a second and a third floor, but they're, they're more or less just like balconies that go around it. So you can see all the way down to the first floor where the musical act is, is performing. And so I was at, I want to say if you're familiar with who the Felice brothers was, but I was friends with someone who was big fans of the Felice brothers. And I went to a concert there. I did, I was not, a, I was unaware of who the Felice brothers were and we're at this concert and we're on the second or maybe it was the third tier of this, of this chameleon club. And for the most part, the, the Felice brothers, I think you might, you might describe the genre as like, punk alt country like it's got that sort of vibe and on the top level was the most sophisticated dressed individuals i've ever seen like in terms of their clothing and their age they were the most uh, like fish out of water of individuals 
who should be in Lancaster. And they like, this is not necessarily the band or the genre or the venue, but I'm seeing them. And I made eye contact with them. I'm pretty certain it was a man and a woman. They were like a very, very striking, handsome couple, impeccably well-dressed and completely out of the element for the situation, for the place. About a week later, a couple days later, I'm in a coffee shop in Lancaster and maybe, I don't know, like five, 10 blocks away from where the Chameleon Club is. And in walked, and what's interesting about this coffee shop, if you're familiar with the movie that came out in the 80s called Girl Interrupted, uh, girl inter- scenes from that movie were filmed in this coffee shop. That would be its kind of mainstream point of reference. Uh, and it's more or less, it, it, it became, uh, and this is like back in like the early 2000s, it, it became this, you know, it was a lesbian coffee shop. I would say 80% of the patrons there would, would, would be lesbian and then 20% would be locals who live in the area because it was a great coffee shop. And I'd be like one of those 20 percenters who would go there. And I love to go to this. I love to be the fish out of water there. But I saw the same couple. They weren't the same people, but it was equally fished out of water there. And it was identified by their clothing. And if you've ever been to like maybe Aspen or Jackson Hole or any of these very, very, very like affluent Western kind of like small cities, which are known as resort towns, there's a certain look of the of the billionaire class that plays there, like just like the type of boots and 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 jackets which they would wear like cowboy hats and they and this couple was dressed in this coffee shop in Lancaster in that way like I'm I've seen it like in in I've been to Aspen I've been to I've been to Jackson Hole in my in my time like I know what that looks like and you don't see it you don't see it on the east coast and you particularly don't see it in this setting and it was so friggin strange and just like the two people who I saw in the Chameleon Club, and, and trust me, I'm not lost in the irony of the name Chameleon. They were like impeccably well-dressed and, out, and fish out of water. I see the same thing there. And I made eye contact with them as well. Like we locked eyes for a little bit. Nothing more than that. No like smiles or winks, just that we made eye contact, that we recognized each other's existence. And that happened to me. And only time I've ever seen it, and the only thing that ever made sense was this feels like a Nordic breakaway, incredibly handsome people, incredibly well-dressed and incredibly wealthy and incredibly weird. Wow. <laughs> In places which are kind of tied to, like it has a little bit of a, of a, of a commercial May element to it. Right. Like in terms of like, you know, a movie was done here or, or bands would, would go through playing in these locations. That sounds, I mean, I don't want to like take the steam out of it, but it almost sounds like how I felt when I saw the Amish people. And I know you are down there with, with Amish, but, but yeah, I mean, I guess you would you'd be more familiar and, and be able to distinguish them from, but I know that they like to get nice and dressed up when they go out and they can kind of. No, no, no. Well, I would say it would be as fished out of water. If you saw an honest person at <laughs> the lobby of 
the one of like the the fancy hotels in these resort cities where like everyone gathers for happy hour and you'd see like an Amish person there and dressed in full like Amish attire. Like, like no, these people were dressed in well-made Amish clothes. I'm talking like they were dressed in like more or less like the type of Western influenced leather jackets and, and like the boots that are all fur that you see on the slopes of Aspen. Like mm. these are like things which like, like if you were to go and shop at, at any of the really fancy shops on, on, on Fifth Avenue in New York city, like, you know, those sort of places where like only the, the hedge fund managers who are making a billion dollars a year, like it was that type of clothing set. Right. Like it was, it was, it was, but I do think it's interesting you bring up the Amish because there are a lot of parallels, but it would be equally in the most general way. Like they were fish out of water as much as the Amish were, but they were very, very sophisticated in the way that you were describing the people who were on the boat, or I'm going to assume like it was probably a fancy boat. And then they just happened to have access to what we would call uh, to unlimited currency of our world. <laughs> like it's not wealth, it's currency, which allows them to buy the, the things of, of, of this particular, of, of what we're experiencing in culture and reality. Like if you were a breakaway culture, like that would be the sort of thing which you would do. Be like, oh, let me go in and like, what do they use for currency? Like imagine if you were to go back to a time where, where the shells are used as currency and you just got a, you got a, a suitcase full of those shells if you travel back <laughs> in time and it's like, so be like, wow, they got all those shells. Yeah. It's like, I know that this is what you guys use and kind of meaning or worthless where I come from or the time period. That's how I own. Or even, or even just going like, you know, taking like your savings and going back a hundred years, like you, you, you might like, you know, with inflation, you'd be like, you know, maybe four or five, six times as wealthy as you are now. Right. Well, and, and you would understand if you were, if you were able to move in and out of civilization at ease in a way that those who live in the civilization don't know is possible. And I would say that also describe what I just described could be used generally to describe time travel is like you would have all sorts of additional information that would allow you to, to benefit. I think that's the nature behind the, the plot of Back to the Future 2 or 3 of like how Biff like used information to become wealthy just within that, within that, that culture. Like that, mm. that would definitely make sense if there was a breakaway civilization. And, and one of the reasons why I'm enjoying this conversation so much is because I think that that's part of what, that is one of the opportunities of what we're seeing exist right now in, 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 the civilization which we're living in is that like now is when the openings for what a breakaway civilization would look for. Like if you're looking for it and whatever that would mean, if you're open to it, you may be able to find it. And I'm going to even circle all the way back to the beginning of our conversation with, with like this, this dream that you're having, this location, like is it past, is it present, is it any of that? Like, you know, let's soften what that is a little bit and say, like, is this the way, like, how you find your way in and out of, of this realm, this, you know, this tesseract? Mm, right. That's how I approach it. Right. Well, I mean, given a lot of the conversations I've heard on various podcasts, it sounds like a lot of people are creating maybe not breakaway civilizations, but self-sufficient communities in response to this whole, you know, 
last two years and everything going down and and now you know people are are panicking about supply you know shortages and all that stuff but yeah i think there's definitely an appeal to being in a breakaway civilization and just being able to to (laughs) to you know come in and out and 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 maybe treat the earth like a, a vacation i feel like that's what they're they do in a way wherever they you know, whether it's a underwater base or a base in some remote area, you know, like you put it, they could just, you know, throw a bunch of stacks of cash in a suitcase and go, <laughs> go spend a few months wherever they want, you know? Well, and even, I mean, if we're, if we're going to be open to playing with these ideas, and that's what I think is important right now with these ideas, letting me just say like, this is how it is as much as to be open to the possibility of there being other ways that are completely different than what you envision, right? And so my sense is when I talked about like this time is that this is when you'd be able to bump up against the, like as you said, the trajectory of the people who broke away in the 1800s and where they, w- where they would be now. I would think that this will we go into this whole sort of time thing, like that w- it refers to people who are not limited by the, mentality of how we perceive and experience three-dimensional reality and part and and like a bucket a thing of cash is is meaningless to someone who comes in and out of this a suitcase of cash would be is worthless and is meaningless outside of of this particular culture as it as it should be but they know that okay when we come in like this is how i go and i play in this world like i think that makes sense and during this time like we can be, we're, we're forced, if you're going to start a breakaway civilization, you bump up against that, whether you want to call that multidimensional <laughs> Sasquatch or the breakaway Nazis or something else. Like, you know, are they really, you know, different? That's, that's part of the interest, I think, in this opening of, of, of ideas. And this kind of what we're talking about, like, yeah, we're, we're, we're really like bumping into the nature of reality and i say this all the time it's like if we're being honest like you have to say that the beginning of of the human experience is a mystery we don't know where we are how we got here what we're supposed to do they're great there are all sorts of great stories that answer it but that doesn't necessarily mean that 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 is it but when we when we could back into that we can begin to become open to other possibilities and that is when these real these really interesting things that you and I point out, like me talking about the rings, you talking about the sigil. I I, I think we we talked about before. Like I sent bags to someone who was from Eastern Connecticut. Like all of these sort of connections. Like to me, they are all <clears throat> like shadows or 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 importations of the nature of the interconnectedness of how these different of what reality is and the more we play with it and the more we are both like completely open of what they could be but then also being very very willing to to test our theories this is how we work our way through this it's very exciting agreed agreed and that's why you know i'm excited for this 20 22 i don't know about you mike but i'm about out of of things to talk about i got well i did write down a few other things because i i was reading 
these books I mentioned, Empire of the Wheel. I, I've got someplace really specific I want to go with it. Take it away. All right. So uh, a couple of things. How, how, how long have we been talking right now? We, we're about an hour in, hour 15? You nailed it. All right, all right, because this is this is a good. This is we we didn't wrap up where we went with the Walker stories, and maybe we'll come back to it as you read more because I'm finding that fascinating. But yeah. I want to go to something a little bit more specific, which I can talk about. I think it it ties into a lot of things. So, right before right before the the solstice, so that would be you know around the 21st or what happened in December, I go and I take this um. I go and I take uh, a Jenny and I go to Gnome Countryside. We see Mr. Rich and we go to one of his saunas. And when he was there, Mr. Rich always invites other people to the saunas. And so that's half the fun is when you go to the sauna because you don't know who you're going to meet. And so it actually turned out to be no one who I had not known before, but someone who I hadn't seen for a long time. It was my friend Zach. And... Zach is probably, if I were to guess, he's in his early 30s. He has what I would say, from my perspective, a biochemist, you know, someone who's got a PhD in biochemistry, understanding of the workings of, of the ecological world, like how we understand soil and trees and growing and all this sort of stuff. And he's also, if we want to go in very generally, you know, painting in a picture, he is, he's like, you know, the ultimate hippie. You know, I've never seen him with shoes on. He spent maybe five years just walking the East Coast, planting trees, but, but, but he's got that vibe as well. Loves that. He's incredibly, incredibly intelligent, incredibly knowledgeable about all things Native American, Native species, very, very suspect of of the the way culture works but you know he doesn't get quite as weird as i like he gets weird but not quite as weird as i could go but like we find this really interesting place where he meets i've known jack for a while so i see him in i see him in the and he says to me and, and, and one of the things zach is very knowledgeable about is the petroglyphs in the susquehanna it's one of the things which he and i have connected over for the years which we've known one another and he says that he tells me that he's going to go to the petroglyphs on the sunrise of the solstice. So like in a couple of days, he's like, Hey, do you want to come with me? My first reaction was like, Oh yeah, definitely. I'm going to come with you. He's like, all right, we're going to meet up around like four in the morning and we're going to get on my canoe and we're, because the, the petroglyphs are out in the river. We're going to, we're going to canoe out there and uh, make certain you're going to have shoes with really good grips because when you get out of the boat, it's really slippery on the rock and it's easy to fall in and then we're going to go and blah, blah, blah. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, mm, why don't we do this summer solstice? Because <laughs> I'm like, you know, he's 30 year old, he's barefoot sack. And you know, I'm like, I'm all old and like I've gotten soft and like, yeah, I like to be warm. And I was like, all right, I'm not, I, 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 but I was inspired. So anyway, so the long and the short of it was this. So I went and I did a solstice thing on at High Point, and this crazy thing happened. But I'm not even going to tell you. Then that in itself is worth an entire show. But what what turned out was Zach went down by himself to the petroglyph, and while he was down there, he ran into someone. He ran into someone, and that was Paul Nevin. And Paul Nevin 
is, if you're not familiar, I've talked about Paul Nevin before, but he is considered the foremost expert, uh, living expert as it relates to the Susquehanna petroglyphs. And you probably remember me talking about a gentleman of, of Toltec descent by the name of Tolakiel. Right. And, and Tolakiel is, and his connection with the petroglyphs goes through Paul Nevin. So Paul Nevin is that conduit, if you will. And Zach runs into Paul Nevin. So Zach runs into Paul Nevin. And I see Zach a couple of days later. And that's really the purpose of this whole story is, is why I saw Zach a couple of days later. But I'm going to finish this line of the story before I leap back to that. So, so Zach tells me he sees Paul Nevin. And I've been trying to, to connect with Paul Nevin for a long, long, long time. And Paul Nevin never, like, you know, for whatever reason, doesn't happen. But he's gracious enough to allow me to use some of his slides, which he does in his presentations in my work. And as long as I, I you know, I, I know where it comes from. But when Zach told me, he's like, he sees Paul Nevin. I'm like, well, well what happened? What sort of interesting conversations did you, what, what did you find out? What did you learn from Paul? He tells me a whole bunch of stuff, and, and a lot of it I was familiar with because I've seen Paul Nevin's presentations, and I, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to it. I took a lot of notes. But then at the end, he was like, oh, yeah, there was this other thing he told me. And the long and the short of it is, is the reason why Tolakiel first started coming to this particular area, the, the Susquehanna at the, at the 40th parallel, was because going way back when, remember, Tolakiel is a title. It is a title. It's not a name. And it is a, a title which could also be thought of as the grandfather of grandfathers. And so there was a, for lack of a better word, let's call it an organization. And it was an elder from each of the different you know, I'll use the word tribe for lack of a better word, of the different peoples in, in like kind of Central America, Mexico, Mesoamerica. And this this council, there were 12 of them. And in, and Tlaquiel was one of them. In fact, that's what Tlaquiel is. It is the, the title of the kind of like the spokesperson or the, the, the head of that group. And they vote upon who that person would be. And in the 1950s, there was more or less a, an open war between the government of Mexico and the indigenous people of Mexico. And during this war, 10 of these 12 men were, were killed. And so there were two survivors, Tlaquiel being one of them, and this other guy. And this other guy, he went, and, and this, I don't know why, but he moved to Wrightsville, Pennsylvania, which is where High Point is. Right. And so we had that connection. So that was, that was the first, like that was brand new to me. And that really changes a lot because there's a lot of mystery in this area as to how did he know, what was, who did he know here, why was he coming and so forth. But that was not the purpose of the story. And this is not, and because that doesn't really have to tie into the breakaway civilization because it does kind of tie into that. So my friend Zach, who I just described to you, I would imagine that Zach probably supports himself as he does. Like, you know, he, he might work as a hired hand in a farm, <clears throat> work that other type of farming type of, of businesses. You know, he's not someone who's like working hard for the money. That's not his value system. <laughs> but he tells me, he's like, oh yeah, I, I am, I'm, I'm now the owner of, of, of some land. And like, 
land. I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like that, you know, I know how the world works. Like how, how do you get to be the owner? Like, you know, how do you get a mortgage? How do you, you know, like all of these sort of things. And so Zach goes and he, and he tells me there's this one particular place, this, 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 this part of land, which he has been very familiar with over the past 10 years. And one of the things which Zach does is he tends to natural preserves and, and takes an active role in terms of maybe managing the canopy and ensuring that native tree species are returning and all sorts of stuff like that. And in his 10 years doing this one particular part of, of the, of the world that he began to meet the people who lived there. And the people who live there, they're, you know, they're, they're, they get kind of up in age. They're, I don't know, 70, 80 years old. And they approached him. Like we've had this, we've had this land since the seventies. In fact, we started this in the seventies, like it was as a commune and we're getting ready. We can no longer take care of it. It's too much work and so forth. And we would like for you to become the, you know, the, the next steward. We want to pass it on to you. Now, they're not giving it to him per se. You know, he's got some money he's got to pay, but it's all what's known as owner financing. Like, there's no banking involved. There's nothing along those lines. So then the question is, they go, so what is this land like? Why are you telling me this story? So this land is, it is on the western side of the Susquehanna. So you, you are familiar with where I live, Mark, which is the eastern side. So it's in southern York County. And it's 10 acres and it is part, one of the boundaries is the Susquehanna river itself. It goes up against the Susquehanna river. And then the two other borders that it has are, 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 uh, nature preserves owned by organizations, which are never going to develop the land. And that whole area probably equates to a couple hundred, uh, acres of, of, of land, which Amongst other things, the Mason-Dixon Trail, and I think maybe even the Appalachian Trail, goes through. So I go down, Zach tells me about this, I want to check out this land. And I have, and I want to check out the, the river. And I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at a lot of different places of the Susquehanna River over the couple of years. And I went to this place, and I've, one, it's a half an hour from where I am. I've never been there before, and I've never seen anything quite like what I saw. It was the most beautiful in a way which I have not seen before, a uh, naturally beautiful area along the Susquehanna. And it is embedded into the, 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 the landscape, the way it naturally shows itself with the outcroppings and the water. It is the most spectacular place for things like ceremony or anything like that is of importance. You'd be like, this is where you would probably want to go and do it. So on the, on the property, there is a house. The original part of the house was built in 1806. And I think that there was another, another part added to in the nineties, not the 1890s, the 1990s. And there are a couple other structures on the property, but the property for the most part is just, is, is wooded and trailed and it is, it is spectacular. So I'm asking Zach, I'm like, Zach, what is, what is your vision now, now that you are, now that you are the steward, the steward of, of this, of this land, what is your vision? He said, well, obviously one to, to manage it as the living sacred temple that it is. But then secondly, 
because Zach, because remember where Zach, where, where Zach comes from, I told you, he spent his entire 20s, like literally just walking everywhere. He is a traveler's traveler, if you will. And he's like, this is going to be open up for travelers. This is going to be open, like kind of like maybe, maybe Airbnb, but, but, but more so like that as an idea. We now know this idea of like Airbnb of like people could come and stay in other people's houses and it's not a big friggin' deal. So it's not exactly that, but he is putting together, he's putting together this infrastructure he has in his heart and in his experience and in his age, like, you know, this is going to be a place where people can pass by. And what they do here, you know, what, what that grows into will, 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 will take seed and roots and, and grow roots. One of the things what Zach said about the general land, not just the 10 acres, which he has, but maybe the, the 150 acres, which surrounds it. He's like, as someone who spent a plenty of time walking the entire East coast, he's like, I've never seen a place where people can just go and disappear quite like this. Hmm. This place is amazing for disappearing. Now here's the last piece of this, the last piece of this uh, puzzle, which I'm going to go and and share with you before I stop talking. And that is, if you recall a conversation we had, it may have been the last conversation I told you about my friend Brandon, who had been um, happenstance been gifted thirteen tons of Susquehanna serpent. Yes, and I also indicated. That, that was uh, the previous episode, 13. That was the previous, that was the previous episode. And then I also indicated that Brandon, who is a, 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 a gifted craftsman in many, many disciplines, he, and then one of our mutual friends, Seppi, they know each other very well through the permaculture, through the permaculture world that they envision on this land of Brandon's is creating this kind of like a not school is going to be a little bit of, 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 of not exactly the right word, but it'll get you into the right space. But like, you know, they want to teach these crafts and these skills, whether that be permaculture, whether that be, you know, blacksmithing, whether that be working with stone, whether all these different sort of things. So they have this vision going on. So that location where Brandon, Brandon's house is, is probably four miles from Zach. <laughs> okay. So what are we beginning to see? We're begin neither one of them had any fucking plan to do this. Okay? Brandon didn't say, Hey, I want to go and and go buy thirteen tons of serpentine. He went to go get some crushed stone so he could put he could put his trailer on it. And then he happened to realize that what they delivered was all serpentine. Which he got for like, you know, for gravel prices. And he's got he's got the full range of serpentine in terms of grades, all the things from from gem grade all the way down. Zach was not purposefully looking for land. Jack, he was like, how you know that would never probably be on his in his in his periphery, but it found him. And they both have visions, and their visions are very very complementary, but they're very different. And so what? What, what, my, what my sense is, you know, something coming from outside, outside of our realm, whatever that may mean, is really, really guiding a taking shape. 
or whether you want to call it a breakaway civilization or whether you want to call it like something, but we're beginning, like, you know, how does this, you know, the question is like, well, how do we go and we create a parallel, a parallel society? Well, guess what? It finds you. <laughs> wow. I love the way it's coming together. Yeah. That's wow. <laughs> So this might be something which we can go and, and uh, talk a little bit offline, but what I would like to do is I'd like for you, you and Tara to come down and we're going to go to Zach's place and you're going to come down and this is probably going to be for your show because I believe my family thinks I'm crazy. There's a, there's a video element to it, correct? Yeah. And... I'm going to say that we should, I, I'm including myself, but I don't have to be included, but that first is like a tour of this place because it's so spectacular. It'll be kind of fun to see it in the winter so that if you see it again in the spring, you can really appreciate all of the different seasons. But we first see these places and then we do a show. And the thing why I think Zach would be such a great uh, guest and Zach would be the guest is, and where I think you're going to find it particularly interesting is. He is so knowledgeable on the different in the 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 the, the indigenous people of of this area of, of all of the northeast. He's one of the most well versed people I know in terms of customs and language and and all sorts of history. And it would be a phenomenal conversation and tying it into this land which you're gonna go and see. So if you're down for it, like I'd like to have that epi that that show occur. I would love to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, you know, what will probably happen is because Zach is just kind of figuring this out as it goes. Once once the spring comes around, once the spring comes around, and assuming like you know there are people who are listening to this show and there are people who are kind of interested in what we're talking about, we're going to start to see how these people can begin to go and see these places. Right. They come to these places. Right. Map it out. Map it out. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. I, I'm excited. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk afterwards about that. But yeah, that's that's cool. I I know I tried to keep keep it as quiet as I could for your surprise party and whatnot. But we were gonna try to come down. It just ended up being being a little too uh, close to the holidays, and you know, had to divert resources to that. But yeah, I'm looking forward to coming down as soon as we can make it happen. And obviously, I don't remember when the last time I updated it, <laughs> you on this, but we're still looking for a place to live. So fingers crossed, maybe it'll be down there. Who knows? I mean, Tara loves the idea, so. I'm definitely well, maybe more hesitant, but I still, if it lines up the right way, I mean. If it lines up, it lines up. Right, right. So If it lines up, it lines up. And I only say that because I feel like there's still something, and this isn't saying, you know, if I move out of state, I can't still look into Connecticut, but I still feel like something's holding me here, maybe magnetically, it's something I need to look into. But the Wardenclyffe Tower that I mentioned briefly, what was really cool is in the Shesh Harry book, it, it's like literally right across Long Island Sound from my hometown. So I was like a little bit, forgot to mention that before, but, but yeah, I love, I love the way it's coming together, Mike. I think the, you know, the story 
is much larger than just what we've said on this podcast. And I'm excited to see how this podcast kind of like connects to even more people, you know, because I've had yeah. a, a bunch of people, Brian, for example, upstate, up in upstate New York, who's been looking into his local area. My friend Moonwolf, shout out to Moonwolf. He's been looking into his area. Justin down in Ohio, he's been looking into his area. So we're definitely inspiring at least just the people that respond <laughs> to me online. So that's cool to see. But yeah, if we can get some stuff going in person, like you're saying, because I know that's more your style or at least what you're you're leaning towards. And, and I think something that Tara and I were bouncing the idea around was doing something like a tour, you know, like Corey Daniels out in Phoenix. When I spoke to him on the podcast, that kind of reminded me of it. But then obviously the tour I went on with you and our, our friend who I forgot his name, what's that came with us? Well, I rather I came with you guys when along on that, you know, the rights of the 40th. I think was that Adam? I don't remember who it was. I remember there've been so many. So, right. but, but yes, I remember when we went. But yeah, either way, point being, in-person stuff is always cooler. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that in 2022 for sure. All right, my friend. Cool. And then where 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 do we go from now? Are we wrapping up? Yeah, I think you know I got to get to that snow. <laughs> that snow oh, outside. You, you guys, that didn't go away. It didn't take care of itself. Well, the sun is not warm enough, unfortunately, to melt it. Maybe tomorrow it'll be melted. But no, I just heard the snow plows go by a couple times. So either way, I'll have to go and redistribute whatever the snow plows just redistributed, you know. All right. <laughs> so, all right. Well, that does it for your handbook for the apocalypse, folks. Remember to support on subscribe star our friend uncle mike and check out everything i'm doing at myfamilythinksomecrazy.com and some of that jewelry that we were talking about at the beginning is for sale now on my website so if you're interested in wire wraps go check those out but anything you want to let the listeners know mike before we go no we have happy a, 20 2022 we had a I question what happened with one question from a, a friend asking about that Freemason meeting, when that's going to happen. January 26th. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people are looking forward to hearing the update on that, that series. I come out alive. <laughs> well, yeah, that's for sure. But you know, Jesse's got your back. All right. Well, until next time, folks, thanks for listening to your handbook for the apocalypse.